0: Hello and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting-edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout-out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. Before I introduce today's guest, a quick announcement. One of the interesting things to come out of producing these episodes so far is that every single guest uses Twitter to keep up with the latest machine learning research and to follow the most important people in the field. And while I am generally hesitant to use any sort of social media, when a bunch of smart people I'll tell you to do the exact same thing, you should probably do it. So I'm going to follow my own advice on this one. And I have started a Twitter account. So you can follow me at Charlie U, you spelled the normal way Charlie U A I. And I'll be posting highlights from the podcast. So I record the video of both me and my guest, as well as posting things that I've learned on the job and things that I've learned from doing these interviews. So again, that is Charlie U-A-I. I hope to see you there. My guest today is an extremely impressive undergrad at Carnegie Mellon. He wrote two deep learning papers while he was in high school and is the youngest Chinese Kaggle Grandmaster at only 20 years old with numerous gold medals and first, second, and third place finishes. He's researching adversarial attacks on graph neural networks and is the first author on a new preprint. Please welcome pei Yuan Liao. Welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. Hello. So this is a question that I'm especially interested in hearing your answer to. How were you first exposed to computer science and what made you pursue it?
1: Yeah, so I was the other day I was like um in my dorm just like browsing videos on YouTube and I remember seeing so basically a video about like how algorithm like a I think a genetic algorithm can help design the best living creature like the best creature are doing something in a similar environment. I think the guy who did it was like a also undergrad at Stanford. I couldn't quite recall his name, but like the idea of just like being able to have a full control of creating like a simulated world and designing and some some automatic procedure to create something that has like a high performance in the world you created and watch the whole thing in a visualized way it just really attracted me and that's when decided to enroll in the AP computer science course uh, in my high school and that's how I got introduced to Java and learned that they're like a lot of programming paradigms in the world, like you have imperative and you have functional, and then that's how I got introduced to basically how you start with like programming. Different like the, the great ideas in programming. That's I think that's like sort of how I would describe it. And then later on, I was introduced to like calculus, and then and as we all know, like you need some sort of like a more of a form of mathematical background to start doing uh, AI and machine learning. I don't know how it gets like weird how people like people are expecting a, like inspirational story but i just started off by watching youtube
0: and you were yeah you said that you were just captivated by the potential of all of it were you what did you do after that to start learning the machine learning part of it
1: i would say that is it was because of kaggle so i had a friend who was into kaggle at the time and then there was this like Challenge where you were supposed to help physicists at the Large Hardron Collider to predict the trajectory of like particles after collision. And so he was into all of these like weird stuff. And he's the guy who likes to do research about the niche fields of machine learning. And he was really into causal causations and stuff, which like we didn't really talk about in like mainstream machine learning. Like, and he, was, and he read a lot of papers by Judea Pearl. And then so he was like, and I believe that using machine learning in like high energy physics is also not common at the time, and he was like, "Would you like to team up in that competition?" And I didn't know anything about machine learning, so I went down to Chicago and I was overwhelmed with everything. So I decided, like, I really want to know what he is working on because I thought that was super cool. So that's where I got got into like learning about machine learning, and then I realized I at the time I was only I have only like just finished my AP computer science. Course, and I was like, I'm way behind on my math, and so I first went back to read a few like, like videos and like books on linear algebra and like calculus, and then I just plunged back into the Kaggle community, and I think that's how I got started, basically.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one of the papers that you had, that you wrote in high school, was using ADMM for compressive audio encoders, and that's it's very interesting because I actually hadn't learned about ADMM until I took a grad level convex optimization course in college, and the math in that it's not trivial. So how did you go from, like you say, being behind on the math and the computer science to writing a paper like that?
1: So just I feel like the papers I did in high school sort of like ideas that like now looking in retrospect does not really work out. Yeah, and. Also, for the specific paper you're talking about, I, I did not come up with the idea. So I'm the second author. I'm not a co-author or a first author. So my friend, who's like, a, I, I think he's, like, real. he, he was into Olympias, like, physics and math, I think, in high school. And he's a friend I met, like, in Shanghai. And so he came up with the idea. But And he got all the math from ADMM, like, working out. And that was like, because ADMM is not supposed to do compressive like lossy image comp- compression is used to use for uh, your network pruning. And then he was like, what if you combine those together? And, and then he was just like, but, but he got the math of ADM figure out, but he couldn't really figure out how to like uh, maintain like a, like a experimental code base for the CV part of everything. And he has some trouble of like writing all like, academic research paper because all the LaTeX, those are like, and how to c- do proper citation, those are stuff. So he just reached out to me. I was like, yeah, after I read through like his proof, which was hard, like, it, it was very dense bad for me. I think it, it still does. ADM is indeed a hard or, algorithm. And so we, well, well, my role in that research was sort of mostly like, maintaining the code base and sort of writing out the majority of the paper, helping me to like, sort of presentation. And, like, the, and we were, we submitted to one of those like top conferences, but we got, I think we got uh, like strong rejections from all of the reviewers (laughs) because not looking bad like that, like the whole idea wasn't really like solid. But but the fun thing is, so after we got rejected, so he sort of sent like a message to like the person, which is, I think he's a senior researcher at Twitter, Image Compression, which, and he, he was the author of the first work in this, like, niche field. So he sort of sent his abstract entire paper to him via a private email saying that, hey, our paper just got rejected. Can you please tell us why? And he was like, "He was this is an interesting, and, and he was basically like, this is an interesting idea, but you have some, like, flaws in your, um, your theorems. But if I were the reviewer, I would have accepted it. And that was a really fun story. And he didn't tell me until, I think, last month. So it was, like, years after, like, we got rejected and just forget about the whole thing. So, it is I think to me personally, it is more of a like a fun research experience. Right now, I think more of a solid idea that could work. Because as you said, this is a really complicated algorithm and just like in my of high school wasn't really like really developed at this point, and just combining like two different ideas from two different fields turns out to not work for the most of the time. Like you need more delicate treatment of them and a deeper understanding in both fields. And I believe that computer vision and say neuroarchitectural search are drastically different field subfields in machine learning.
0: Yeah, yeah. And of course now you're researching in another subfield and that is with information stored in graphs. So how did you get interested in graph representation learning, graph neural networks?
1: I feel like I'm just fascinated by the idea of, like, how can... So I was reading an article where, like, they said... That, so you have... Uh, I was reading to cover vision, so I did a lot of work on uh, convolutional networks where, like, you just have filters going through. And then there was this article saying that you can treat, like, images as, like, Euclidean grids on graphs. But what if you just make the definition really loose and you can have any graphs and... Then you can just explore exploit the neighborhood features on it, and that will open up. Like it was mind blowing for me. So and I also had this friend who I collaborate. This friend who he is pursuing uh like the last year of PhD uh, also at Carnegie Mellon. So and he was like, I'm called, I'm doing this research on graph neural networks. Would you like to learn more about it? And I was super excited about it. So that's how I got into researching graph neural networks. And I always had a fun time learning about how like adversarial learning uh, any sort of data because like I I was also looking into papers in uh, generative adversarial networks in high school where you can create realistic pictures by this minimax game so yeah I guess it's a combination of both
0: and so can you explain a little bit of your of the new preprint that that you have out it was pretty recently uh, maybe two weeks ago when the first version came out
1: yeah, so like basically, the story is that graph neural networks are great, but by because the, the aggregation scheme fits right into how the data is structured. You have people relating by like uh, nodes in a graph relating by edges and like uh, common neighbors and stuff. But when you're talking about like malicious attackers trying to steal information from the nodes, they have a problem is that the better predictive accuracy comes to the cost with the malicious attackers being easier to do inference attacks. And th- this is like a, a new notion of being inference attacks. It's kind of like, I'll just give an example because we have a, a more uh, information theoretic formulation in our paper. But I'll just give an example saying if Instagram wants to predict, say, what kind of... I, I don't use a lot of Instagram, so this is just hypothetical. Or like some, some social media app X wants to predict if you want to, if you prefer product A over product B. And if you're using graph neural network, it sort of get produce a higher accuracy by looking at who who who, who your friends or like who, who you're f- friending and what kind of celebrities you're following. And it gets better at doing that. But sometimes you have information that highly correlated with like sensitive information saying that you, you're not like people are afraid of information leakage, right? Like, you don't want to know what's your uh, gender identity, what's your sex, where you're from. And some of the information that neural network automatically learns to, to predict your, say, product, which product do you prefer, can be highly correlated with those sensitive informations. And if you're using graph neural networks, empirically, attackers attackers are more e- can more easily infer those sensitive informations from the producing embeddings. And what's even worse is that since you have information of your neighbors, that means that I can steal your friends' information from your embedding, which is totally impossible for non-graph neural networks. And this is, I think this is the coolest insight from our paper is that, say, if I friended you on Instagram and, sorry, social media FX, and the attacker, if wanted, can sort of infer my sensitive information from just looking at by attacking your iPhone, say, or, like, you, your, like, device. And so we did a similar treatment of producing a adversarial learning framework on this entire new problem, because this wasn't a problem with... Because I, if you I have all users making inferences on just a single node information, there will be, like, it's, it's obvious that you can't do sort of like, neighborhood attack. So we tackled this problem. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. Like you say, it's inference attacks are not generally what have been studied so far in the adversarial examples research. The, most of that has been, I don't know what how they classified actually, but it's... Uh...
1: Yeah, because the classical notion of adversarial attacks on graph is that the attacker wants wants your neural network to fail. So by perturbing the graph, like by injecting an uh, actual node or tweaking a uh, node level or agile information. But right now what we are doing is like, your graph neural network still learns fine. But someone is attacking it without sort sort of without you knowing it, like it's stealing information from the whole scheme. So yeah.
0: And the interesting thing is that, at least when I was reading it, is for the adversarial attacker, its input data is uh well in one it's the embedding of the graph representation itself, mm-hmm. or the uh, like the output of the inference. I guess I'm thinking in terms of a practical example is the thinking that it's possible that an attacker, like a hacker would go into the, the system and maybe read that output uh, after putting some inference into the public API. And then from there they can reconstruct parts of the graph.
1: So the way I see this, because like the, the professors I'm collaborating with, um, are not like we're not really concerned on like how the attackers are really like work working to get information and as you can see from the formulation we are not defining like a particular attacker we're, we're defining the simulated optimal attacker okay but the train data of the the, the attacker is not the hidden uh, let's just let's just put hidden test that away because that's how you measure the real performance but like the attacker has oracle knowledge of the trainer we're saying that this is the best you can get Among all attackers, so like we had this uh, information theoretical bound proven, but saying that, and our whole idea was that with the best possible, like with the best possible attack you can do, the predictive accuracy you you can't get like you can't get really good result from it. So in practice, you can't have oracle access to the entire like uh, infrastructure or framework. So that what, what you get is definitely much worse than this. So. I said that our framework does not really have any like does not imp- does not imply or like, suggest any like, practical ideas of stealing from it, but for more of setting up this like a uh, perfect scenario for attackers and to show that it does not work well. So and in reality, it is much worse. So mm-hmm. that's the mm-hmm. way I would see it.
0: Yeah, gotcha. And I liked how you were able to, or, or you and your co-authors, of course, were able to. Show the the sne of before and after. It really shows how it because of the, of the different colors. You can clearly see clusters, but then afterwards, it's pretty much just a lot of it is jumbled up.
1: Yeah, so we were we were working on the we were working on the tables, and uh, one, one of the co-authors said that this is a new notion. It, it gets really confusing, and and with traditional attacks, of adversarial class and graphs, and we we're thinking like. How can we make this more dazzling? Well, not dazzling. How do you make this more intuitive to, to people? And then well, my friend, like uh Dr. Heng Zhao, and he was like, why don't we just do it on much smaller data? Because the core data is pretty small, right? And you just do, you just protect information off uh, no-level labels. And then you just grab it all with the gene symmetries. And it was way more impressive than we thought. We thought it would be like slightly more government, but this is, but, what were result is just a huge pile of like different node node colors mixing up. And it was really it was really fun to because graphing it all was also not a trivial task. I spent a lot of time working on it. And, yeah, it was really uh, satisfying to see the uh, final result,
0: yeah, yeah. So to back up for a second, I'd like to hear a little bit about the overall research process uh, that you went through for this. Was this a? problem that was given to you by your advisors or the your co-authors were they already working on it and you just jumped in or how, like how did it how did this start
1: yeah i think it was last october where i was just still reading like preliminary articles on graph neural networks and then cars came to me saying that they have this idea of a new notion of adversarial attacks and graphs and they had some theories working out but it would be really appreciated if someone can help them with setting up a, a code base because they, ha- they also have other parallel projects going on and it will be really helpful because so- someone can run experiments and think about new applications and new scenarios for them that's how I saw participating in the whole thing and we were just it was like a like like the pulse of the projects is a like uh, it's like bi-weekly where basically like we would discuss about how the theory is working out and then we would discuss new experience. And then I run the experiments and give them the preliminary results. And they will sort of like revise the theory based on results and, you know, propose new experience. That's basically how it works. Okay.
0: Okay. Interesting. Do you have a certain method for, I guess, choosing like finding papers to read that could be, or in general, more broadly finding ideas to test for, to advance the theory. Like, how do you think about where you want to get ideas from, what you prioritize testing?
1: I sometimes just go to the archive, see what's going on, or go to some uh, random medium blogs. And also, like, by looking at, like, new competitions coming out on Kaggle, you know, a glimpse of part of the industry, like, what they're concerning. That's, like... There was, but okay. The example I'm about to give is not really about industry, but the creator of keras uh, François Collet. He was proposing a challenge on abstract reasoning, and, and I think he hosted like a competition on Kaggle where like you are supposed to train an a, a, like quote unquote intelligent agent that can perform like pseudo. I would call as pseudo reasoning like human, and that got me sort of interested in how like AI fits into this like abstracted uh, automated reasoning of you know, general stops, and and then I'll w- I, w- I just went to archives and search for like say like keywords and just reading papers. And for more popular fields, I'll just go to sometimes like uh, paper with code. There's like leaderboards or everything, and I will just go from top to leaderboard to down, seeing like, what are the CLDR results and hard implemented. And I then I'll just go to say the reference section to see like what papers are they referencing, and they just go from there.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you have a method of note taking or organization while you're doing this?
1: I'm actually quite horrible for note taking because I'm just getting distracted by so many new ideas that I didn't really. Because I feel like even when I was in uh, college, I was taking courses. Like note taking was more of a way for me to stay concentrated than like for me to go back to look at it. I feel especially for college courses, like I get more acquainted with the materials by practicing your problems not like reading the old notes because I feel like if you're just reviewing what you already know, like there could be hidden pitfalls that that you can only discover when you're do you are seeing your problems. And I feel like for me, apart from like a research where there's a set goal and I can perform so like a directed search on on the what I would call like the, the larger knowledge base of internet, my usual like process of finding new researchers, new ideas more is less like orchestrated, I'd say. I I would just like wander like randomly on the internet to find new ideas. And I feel like the search engines and all these gadgets that people develop, like archive sanity and a paper with code, they're really helping people to do that. Yeah, I'm really grateful for that. But it's not organized at all, I'd say. Like I I read papers for fun. So like some like people read like I don't know novels or like books, but like i i most of the time I'm just reading papers i I really enjoy the elegance of some of the academic writers. I feel like that's more like a, an art to be learned in on its own to be like separate by like the art of writing novels, I say,
0: yeah, yeah, that's funny yeah, I, I also in my free time find myself just pulling up the latest uh, top on archive sanity and checking out what what's going on. is there a research tool that you wish existed hmm. for organizing papers or something like that.
1: There's a tool that exists that I would really love to learn if I have time. It's like how you do hyperparameter search for experiments, right? If you like what kind of learning rate you should use, batch size and uh for image really research, what kind of like uh, augmentation you want to use. And there are a lot of like great tools out there, but I just feel like the cost of me learning them is more than just doing a sort of heuristically, heuristically like uh, recording them from using a separate tool, say like paper, Will I have, have an Excel sheet. And like if I have just one week off by doing nothing, like, oh, and again, just plan my time according to whatever I want to do, I'll, I'll probably learn a similar tool, something like that. There's something, I think Microsoft has a tool called N I where you can do... Uh, like grid search of hyperparameters, but I tried to use it for a few weeks, but it the experience wasn't that good. Yeah, I guess if there would be it would be better if there's like a more I guess to me intuitive tool for hyperparameter search.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a great answer actually. I also still use Excel or actually Google Sheet just to record all the experiments. But it does get unwieldy, especially when you're running multiple experiments at one time because you have to keep track of all the different instances and Make sure that you run the right one, you don't duplicate something. Yeah, I don't know how the tool would handle something like that.
1: Yeah, and I feel like the current tools all make some sort of presumptions on how your code should behave. Like it gets your code base, it, it requires a more restricted code base, like behavior. So, like some of the current code base does not fit well into the whole like paradigm that the hyperparameter tools are specifying. So, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. What are your. Go to tools right now. I know that in your repos they're almost all PyTorch, but other useful things that you use along the way.
1: Although I'm using like PyTorch, but like when it comes to actually like deploying a machine learning algorithm, like I I use I, I do use like TensorFlow and okay I really really like I, I have I didn't publish it a uh, uh, uh part of working out because it is so like arbitrary and I have a lot of dirty code hidden in it, but I actually have a uh, PyTorch to TensorFlow convert experimentally designed. Like, uh, I cover PyTorch into ONX and, and I convert ONX into TensorFlow. It is not nice at all. You you, you definitely have to write like actual code for just one particular PyTorch model to be able to, sorry, to be able to co- to, to convert it into TensorFlow. And it is a really bad project. But like, it, the, pro- the code project was bad. it wasn't like generic at all to be able to use a, to be be able to sorry to have the quality to open source but i feel like i really enjoyed the idea of onx being like the most general format for all networks and i think there is opportunity for other fields of computer science to be involved in say because like the neural network is an intermediate representation i think of it as like that. and there, there are optimizations that can be done and, and are you can you can design maybe maybe there's you can design a better IR that allows easier transfer from PyTorch to TensorFlow because I believe right now TensorFlow is still easier to deploy when compared to PyTorch, yeah? So, say so that if there is a really good tool to let you do the conversion without any performance loss because I, I remember that like when you convert a PyTorch model into your ONX, there some trickier operations can have huge performance losses because the way OX wants to make everything general to be able to con- to, to be able convert to other IRs. So and that's something I'm currently looking at. But this is like sort of different from research because this is like more of engineering thing. And yeah, but I'm just looking at like different con- like network format conversion tools. And I think some of them are really great.
0: Yeah, it's such a big problem and the potential is so huge if we can, as a field, agree on a universal model format because once you have that, Onyx is pretty close, but it's not quite there. It's come a long way though in the past few years. But if we did have an agreed upon format, you could have all sorts of tools on it that once you have that trained model, you convert it to Onyx. And then from there, you can just have it automatically do things like pruning or making it smaller other things like that consistent ways to optimize it on different types of hardware automatic deployments so it's really a yeah interesting interesting engineering challenge
1: and i believe that TVM has some attempt on automatically writing like operators like optimized operators for different backends but i feel like another problem is that people like researchers come up with new sorts of ops every single day like you have deformable convolution you have uh for recommender system you have quaternion embeddings like how is the universal ir going to keep up with all these new stuffs going in and fun fact i don't think i don't think there is actually a cpu implementation of deformable convolution out on the internet there's only a gpu there's only multiple gpu implementations which is really funny if you think about it, because that's the formal collusion seems to be a really old idea. Or maybe I just didn't search hard enough on GitHub. But because the thing is that, like, my driver broke down like a few months back, and I had to run something that contains the formal collusion. I just couldn't run it because it just says that CPU back and now support it. So I did an exhaustive search on the internet, and I just couldn't find it. It was really funny.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you seen uh, or read anything about Jax or? The or flax, like the whatever the neural network library that people are building on top of it is.
1: Yeah, I've always wanted to uh, learn about it, but not yet.
0: Yeah, okay, that's uh, same thing with me. I don't know, I just found it like uh, a few weeks ago actually, and I've started to look into it. But it seems like that's probably some sort of good step in terms of being almost purely functional in the way that it enforces like your function definitions, so that you can have automatic differentiation. And if you could build that on top of something or have some, I know TVM is not this exact same thing, but if you have some layer underneath that can automatically do those optimizations on the different hardware, that seems like a pretty optimal solution.
1: Wow, that sounds so cool. Yeah, I'm also a big fan of, I don't know if functional refers to like functional as in functional programming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm also a big fan of uh, functional programming, like program language theories. And I'm taking a course um, by a professor, Robert Harper, who is the inventor of uh, uh, center metal language. Yeah, and, yeah, I'll definitely look into it.
0: So to switch now to talking about Kaggle, obviously you are a ranked number 18 in the world right now, which is extremely impressive. And you said that that was how pretty much how you got started in machine learning. So if yep. you look back on from now, knowing what what advice would you give to yourself who's just starting on Kaggle or other people who are?
1: I'd say, I'd probably say that you should get like a more solid like background know, say uh, programming in general and sort of mathematics before like you... Because I feel, although the cow is really helpful, like, but you need to sort of know, like, you know what you're writing and like what that means. Because there are like a lot, of, a, a lot of like good, useful starter resources. Like I said, like starter, they have this starter notebook notion where they basically give a starter code that has like a sort of, like a decent performance on leaderboard. And like I said, if you're just basing everything off that and not caring like what the code actually stands for, you still hit, like, a bottleneck where, like, you can't, say, advance into you to get a gold medal, because you didn't understand what you were doing. You were just doing con- combinatorics, basically, combining tricks from notebook one, noble two, and not really understand what they are doing. And that's, like, the thing the thing I was stuck into when I was sort of, like, the first half year I was practicing in Kaggle, because I didn't have the solid, like, mathematical and programming background for it. And especially for like, harder competitions in Kaggle, like, you you have to learn about the more complex like paradigms in like uh, software design, like maintaining a large code base, right? Like how do you so if your network is, is not it is not training at all, or it, it is not converging, you sometimes have to print out the gradient of every single layer, or to print out like to print out where exactly does it start to the, the loss start blow off, and that requires some more careful treatment of the code base rather right? than just a single uh Jupyter notebook. You need to start. about how to structure their expertise and stuff and i think you need like more experience in in general and that's why i suggest you like to go away from the kyle community and to like start learning more about like machine learning and like math and computer science and then go back in and participate in more competitions
0: is there a specific resource that you would recommend to people who are looking to get more of that background
1: Gosh, I wish there was, like, a single resource <laughs> you can get on. But, like, as I said, the way I, I search for knowledge in the internet is really unorganized. I just yeah. run both of them. Like, I have, like, at least 200 tabs opening right now <laughs> in my browser. <laughs> yeah, so basically that I wish I could give a more, like, a better advice, but
0: not really. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you first see a cow competition... And it looks interesting, interesting data set, interesting problem. What's the first thing that you do to try and make a submission?
1: I would just like build the easiest, like the easiest ML way of solving Because, uh, because note that there are a lot of competitions in Kaggle where the optimal awesome solution is actually not machine learning or not canonical machine learning. But I would just build the easiest model ever. So, first, testing out that if my submission format is correct. And this is just a competition thing, but like, yeah, but you just to see what performance can get. Like that also gives me like what is the best possible score I could get for anyone. And that's also a measure of how saturated the lead board is going to be in the last final days. And if it's going to be too saturated, I'm probably not going to participate in it because at that time it's more of a luck rather than testing all, testing all like what you really know about a competition or like the field.
0: That's interesting. I never thought about the the metagame of placing in these Calgo competitions.
1: So because it- they use a private data set which you cannot probe to calculate a final score. Yeah. And like machine learning algorithms are inherently probabilistic and then there are there's fluctuations by just using different speeds. And if that fluctuation is dark enough for like say twenty places, then placing the first and the tenth doesn't really make any sense. Yeah. Anymore. yeah. So I I would prefer to not participate in those challenges if that was the case.
0: Mm-hmm. What's the sign that you look for? Is it just how closely how many people are in the competition or how closely the leaderboard is in terms of the score?
1: I guess I would look at the data set. If it's like a quote unquote too easy, then there's probably a, there's probably a saturation going on, but there are like hidden tricks. Like the, the whole thing was magic. It's like how like some data set. There is a hidden trick that if you can find it out. And I, I don't think that organizers design it like deliberately, but there are tricks sometimes hidden in a competition. And you find out, you can definitely guarantee a good place. But that, you can't sort predict that. But basically that. And then the good old trick is to submit the same model with different C train and see the public leaderboard. That gives you sort of a sign. But yeah, just if your scores jump like greatly by just using a different seed, that's a sign that this is probably not a good data set. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. So when you are first making that submission just to see the most basic solution, are you doing like basic feature engineering on it or are you going straight into a deep learning approach?
1: I think it depends on competition, right? Because there are like yeah, different yeah. competitions, types of competitions at Kaggle, where the more tabular one is just you, you're just using, say, like light GBM or XGBoost or gradient boosted decision trees for them, and those are where you need more experience in feature engineering, and you tend to not use a pure narrow approach because, like, all the narrow themselves serves as, serves as a special group of features that you can ensemble in your final submission, but they themselves. Are typically, not strong s- solutions, and for like image or like LPRD submissions you're just I'll just like slap a like ResNet with the most basic pipeline with say at all, all times to see, to see what how it is performing, and that sort of gives you an idea, right? Because you have if say like you're using an F1 score and a simple ResNet can give you like a 96, like 0.96 F1, that's in a different situation than say if you are. If you can only get a really like low precision and recall, say like a point thirty thirty two, because if you like, okay, here's a not so correct but more empirically uh, derived rule. If you are in an image classification challenge, when you when your naive classifier cannot reach a good score, that probably means that you're looking at something more along the line of metric learning than actual classification. Because because you have so many like the way I understand is that like, you have so many noise. Interacting between the different classes that if you're just softmax everything, then you'll probably not get a good result. So you need to train the network to walk specifically for intra class and interclass class uh, interactions.
0: What would be the once you recognize that, what would be the first step in doing that? What do you mean, like? In so you, you yeah, like you notice that the the naive method doesn't really work. Maybe there's, like you said, interactions between the different classes. What would you do to parse that out and really figure out what's going on?
1: I guess I'll just use some like uh, methods in like metric learning, like triplet now- network or like CMN um, network to see if that gives a bump in performance, and if the bump is not is not significant as well. Then we are looking at something sort of line, line of like the, the magic of the competition or sort of what's going on with data. Now I'll probably do a more in-depth exploratory data analysis on it, saying like graphing out, to say the latent, the latent vectors, learned latent vectors, seeing the confusion matrix, or by just seeing the image one by one to see if there's some sort of, uh, I don't know, noisy labels yeah. or just, yeah, things like that.
0: And I think it might be useful to walk through the solution of maybe a recent competition that you placed well in i saw that you recently did the landmark re- was it recognition or retrieval
1: uh recognition i also did re- retrieval but i ran out of time so I, I wasn't placed really well on that one and i had the opportunity to work with three amazing teammates on the recognition Sean, yeah uh, we got lucky
0: yeah so was your i'm guessing your baseline solution given what you said so far for that was uh When you're first starting to look at it, it's just ResNet with classification, trying to see how that does, or was it something else?
1: Okay, the thing with the recognition challenge in particular is that I participated in 2019 edition of it, so I had previous experience. It's just the same challenge with different data sets. Oh, interesting. Okay. In that that case, this is a huge data set with millions of pictures, and I think 80,000 classes. There's no way you could train a classifier on that. There's so many noise between like, if you softmax a, a vector of eighty thousand, I think, yeah, eighty thousand.
0: Yeah, that doesn't. It's not going to work. That doesn't so work at all. Do you approach it more as a learning to rank problem then?
1: Yeah, the trick is to treat it as a retrieval problem. It's just a top one retrieval. Like you can think of classification as a top one retrieval, right? Like you just like retrieve the top sort of like you can do accumulation but the most naive way is you just retrieve the top one image from the gallery and inspect its class and use that class as your final class. That's sort of like the baseline for this image competition. But it wasn't, the notion of this retrieval as recognition wasn't trivial for last year because literally like only five teams figured it out, like five to 10 teams figured it out for last year's competition. But then after all the solutions get you know, aggregated and published and discussable uh, on the workshop, then it's becoming the norm for this year's competition. And that's what I would describe as like a progress of the field over the years. People trying to learn that you can't just, for large-scale recognition, you can't just classify You have to do some sort of retrieval-based
0: methods. Mm-hmm. So to dig into the details of that a little bit more, what was that baseline solution that you started with for the 2021?
1: I believe it was like just a ResNet 50 with like, Train, train with arc phase loss. Arc face loss is a, like like a go-to loss for a new like metric learning problem that I tend to use. Yeah, I just train with uh, arc, arc phase loss and then I just did a sim- sim- simple top one uh, retrieval with the, the, the train set. Like I just do a test set retrieving on train set. And that sort of gave us a basic idea of how that will perform. And then I just went from there to, say, boost the, the the backbone, like using, say, EfficientNet, which is a killer in image stability. Like they're beating like carefully designed pipelines. And I think that's really, that's something that's really interesting, right? Like a powerful backbone beating like carefully designed pipelines. Yeah. And, and just using different losses that suits the data set better. And that's how we approach the problem. Yeah.
0: mm mm-hmm. So I'm not that familiar with uh, the structure of a retrieval problem. What is there a simple way to explain uh, what that loss function is trying to do?
1: So I'm also not that familiar with like traditional works in uh, retrieval-based really. image retrieval. I think it's a very well-studied field, and I don't feel like capable of of describing. But what we sort of like still treat it as like a metric learning problem. So archivist law is just Saying that, like the abstract notion is to separate like the embeddings from different classes as far far as possible, and to make embeddings of images to the same classes as compact as possible. I think that's the way I, I would describe it. And there are different tricks on like if you want to separate them from a like a space or just creating a space, or do you want to view them as like unit on a sphere? And there's all sorts of oh, tricks I see. That you can do on them.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then, so when you run the inference, it's just uh, like cosine similarity between the maybe like the average of the...
1: Yeah, so yeah, like okay. like centroid or like just individual yeah. sub uh, instances. And there's also a really uh, interesting application of actually grafting a network that did not have time to try this challenge. As you can do a spatial verification. So in a, in a sense, you can train network to pick up the most like all, the the most outstanding features of an image that co- attributes to how is it classified how is it retrieved and you can think of them as key points right so you have geometric like you have cartesian coordinates of a few key key points and the idea is you you are doing retrieval right so you can calculate how the key points match with each other in two images and that's more of a geometric problem and there are works on it that uses graph neural networks to do that. I think, uh, do not quote me on this. I think it's called SuperPoint. And I think, actually, do not quote me on this because I did. I, I ran out of time. i look looking at the work. But like people are are using do use uh, graph neural networks these kind of tasks recently. They give huge boosts to traditional methods.
0: Is so that's kind of like the intuition is that. You because there's landmarks, there's very distinctive things about them, and you're so you're essentially just trying to learn the different like in you're trying to learn, like you said, the key points, but from invariance of the of how it's captured.
1: So when you're doing the normal retrieval without all the GNN stuff or the key point stuff, it just say, us say, if high dimensional vectors with say cosine distance or l2 distance and there could be noise in them this is still pretty noisy and so that's a squished information compared to the raw like uh, raw, raw 3d raw three, three dimensional tensor representation of the image and there's another thing that you can look about to, to look at that is not there's not high dimensionally compact is geometric information so if you want to so you treat a the gallery theme images and what you have for a query image is an Eiffel Tower, right? So your key point instructor will like identify the most distinct features of the Eiffel Tower, say the, the point head or the square, sort of like square base. And using grafting our core traditional methods compare them to the key points in the in the query, in the in the top three query. You can't compare it with the entire gallery. That takes too much time. right? But say if you have a, I don't know. A picture of somewhere else in Paris that somehow the graph it tricks the convolutionary arc to think that it is related to Eiffel Tower. But there's no geometric verification. You, you can't match a random building with the Eiffel Tower. That's like how ge- geometric verification works. Not geometric, sorry, spatial verification. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, very interesting.
1: And, but it also has a here's a catch, right? The pure matching of geometric uh, spatial verification doesn't mean that. The retrieval is correct. So you have a toy Eiffel Tower or an Eiffel Tower of like somewhere in China, like a, a small version yeah, of Yeah,
0: or it. in Las Vegas. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The, the GN still to parse those things are high, as highly related. But then here comes in the global features, where global features takes into account of all the other things. So it's like interaction between these two.
0: So for the landmark retrieval, once you have that. Yeah, as you say, ResNet fifty trained to separate the embeddings as much as possible. Where do you go from there in terms of trying to improve it?
1: I sort of just like I was then teamed up with a bunch of amazing teammates. We we're just discussing on how how we could improve it, and then so since we had a lot of the computer research, we just ran them from EfficientNet B three to B seven. I, I we ran like hard experiments to see like what the backbone was capable of doing it. And then one of my friends, he's an expert at ArcFace, related loss. So we have some, also had some in-depth, uh, like sort of discussion on how to improve the ArcFace loss to, to serve specifically for this question, uh, for this competition. And I think that's what I'm doing like to improve, to exploit the current scheme as much as possible. And then I was looking at like recent papers in retrieval, what sort of insight can kind we of gain from them? And I went out to try a few ones. And unfortunately for this competition, like we ran out of time because we were like, by simply boosting the original framework by either boosting up, like improving the archivist loss and improving the backbone and hyperparameters give, uh, gave us enough boost to reach third place. So it's like abandon the other approach of using new methods near the end of competition. But normally what I would do in other teams or solo is that I would just read lots of sell paper. R so, for example, I was also participating in the wheat detection challenge uh, a few weeks back. I basically read every single paper that gave a, a cocoa average precision higher than, I think, 40. Wait, is it 40? Yeah, I think it's 40. Yeah, I above 30 threshold. Yeah, I read every single paper on paper with code, and I was, and that helped me formulate like what tricks I should use uh, in my further experience. I think reading CWR so papers is an important part in excelling in uh, deep learning based competitions in Kaggle. Yeah, that's how I would describe it.
0: Yeah. So for the wheat detection challenge, that's essentially a yeah, it's a it is an object detection program uh problem, but specifically for this one class. So I'm guessing that you dove into what Faster RCNN and those types of papers like YOLO. Where how do you do you just take the Best state of the art paper from there, and then try to apply it, and then use that as the baseline for the for that challenge.
1: Oh, so for that baseline, so it's my path of picking the best baseline for for that challenge was a bit like sort it wasn't that easy because I was initially using a repository called MF detection. I was actually contributing to the uh, repository. It has uh, a lot of state of the art uh, networks in them with methods like and special losses, which is really great. And I was working on it, but it requires you to build it in the cargo kernel environment, which was not a pleasant experience because I have to figure out how how the dependencies make work. So I started from it. And then I came across this wonderful PyTorch porting of efficient debt, which was the sale of the art at that point. So I started off that repository. I basically dissected every single file in it. And I did like major modifications on every single module to so figure out like uh, why this is working and how it works. And so I basically just like for every day I just came across a new paper and then took me like three to four hours to implement that on that code base, and then I'll just run an experiment and test it on a public report. And if it doesn't work out, I just remove that part code from the code base and start again. So it's like a more of a dynamic process for that computation, particularly.
0: Mm-hmm. When you're playing around with those different like you said, you have the, uh, the repo and you're trying to figure out what makes the difference in that architecture. Are you just swapping around layers or how are you thinking about learning about what makes it work?
1: I said that there isn't really an organized approach to to test if something works. It's just that because there's so many things that affect the effectiveness of a, a trick in mm. machine learning pipeline, right? Like you have hyperparameters, you have, and more often than not, the combination of two tricks may not lead to a better improvement. And that's something I've observed, like over, like by testing like numerous combinational tricks. sometimes I interfere with each other because, like, like the way I see it is the intuition behind the design of these tricks sometimes can be conflicting. And if if you put those conflicting, but sometimes. And the more tricky thing is that the intuition is sometimes is not the same as how the authors see the intuition of the trick so there isn't really an organized approach and i wish there is like a unified framework of tricks in machine learning that would be that'd be awesome you have we have backs of tricks for training computer uh, sorry convolutional networks that's awesome but if there's a unified approach on how how to push a certain problem to its extreme by combining existing approaches And my experience for the past month of testing our code is that it is really chaotic. You just need to keep trying and see behind the curtain of what the trick is actually doing and implement it faithfully to the implementation. And you just run experiments with multiple flows to see if it works. It is, I'd say, more empirical than theoretical. It's more like of artisan's work, like back when we did not know how chemistry works, but we could still forge like bronze and things
0: like that. Yeah, very interesting metaphor. Like you say, it's definitely there is a science, of course, to it, but it is also part of that art and craftsmanship as well. How many experiments do you think you ran in the course of trying to in that wheat detection challenge?
1: I think I tried over thirty papers, I oh, believe wow. at least. I lost track like along the way. It, it just in my winner write up, I have a short list of what worked and a huge list of what did not work. <laughs> and I think it was the funny part. Like I tried like too many. And I think another problem is that uh, for some tricks, there is no way to implement faithfully according to the paper. Cause sometimes the author just do not give like enough information for you to re-implement it. So that also counts as part of why I'll sometimes just go to a method and after I read the paper I realized it is impossible to recreate it and then I'll just skip it. Yeah, that's also part of the whole filling list of
0: things that didn't work. Is there do you is that pretty standard that you'll try just a ton of different papers and and either and then find one that does work that gives you a really good leaderboard result? Or is there a or does it sometimes just go right away, and you don't have to dig through all those?
1: Honestly, I do not really have. I, I do see my, I do not see myself as being like a veteran kaggleist kind because of, there are people with much more experience than I do. But with my uh, few experience of doing like computer vision related competitions, I, I do have to read uh, all those papers because I, I was working on a challenge on image segmentation where I used a then-novel loss called lovat Softmax, which is a, a reinterpretation of uh, intersection over union. Like, it gave a better approximation than dice coefficient or binary cross-entropy. So, yeah, I had to go over paper. And it was dense in math for me back then. And I had to really, like, sort of see, took a few days to see what's happening before I implemented it. Yeah, I said that re- in order to get high in the board, like reading papers is a must, I'd say.
0: How do you decide? So we talked this, a little about this before in terms of how saturated the leaderboard is, but how do you decide when to quit a competition? Say, this is the probably the best that I can do, take a lot more effort.
1: I guess I I either quit in the first week or I just don't. I just keep trying because <laughs> like somewhere inside me I think that you know the randomness of statistics favor me. <laughs> by the leader was so I really quit. But if I do want to quit, I I probably quit in the first day before even maybe me making the second submission. I just realize that this is not worth it. But if I do decide to stick to it, I'll probably compete all the way to the end unless I have a major assignment due at the yeah, same time. yeah, week. of course. Yeah.
0: yeah, when you're making that decision in the first day or before that second submission is it just based on how well that baseline submission does or the process like how difficult it was to get that
1: yeah I think so because I was doing sort of a 3D object detection model like challenge and like it it's took me so much effort to get the whole 3D detection pipeline to run that and after seeing my first 10 submissions all having the wrong format, I just decided that this is maybe... I'll come back to another challenge maybe a few years later when I'm more experienced in designing complex pipelines. Because I feel like 3D detection is more is a huge step up compared to 2D detection because the software is more complex. The math is more complex. You have to learn a lot more about geometry, I believe. And I do not think I'm equipped with that kind of like mathematical skills to do it. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that that now we're seeing, because the original idea of deep learning was very simple. Alex, it's it's not advanced calculus or anything, not really, like you can, it's very easy to understand conceptually and implement actually. But now, like you say, we're seeing some of these, quote, real math ideas uh, make their way into these, deep neural networks to try and give the network a little bit more of an understanding of how it can work. So like I just saw a a paper that was using ideas from topology and using like manifold networks. And yeah, it's uh, like you say, the math of those gets quite hairy if you've uh, never approached them before. Lots of symbols that I don't know what they are. (laughs) You see, you already said that reading papers, reading the state of the art, testing a lot of things is very important in your process. What do you think ha- is the difference between someone like you who's at the top of of all the people in the competitions? What makes the difference between you and someone who has been trying to get there, who's maybe they're placing decently but not great? I feel like...
1: So, this is... I think that this is something that only applies to Kaggle, not to the greater and I don't want to I, I don't want to be over but I feel like the difference is that I look at the data a lot more closely. I once like for competition I printed all five thousand like the prediction test set. I went through them one by one to see where exactly my, my model is going wrong. And this is usually not advised when you're doing actual thing in industry. I presume I've never taken a serious job in industry before, but I don't think this is what you do every what people do every day. But yeah, I think the thing with cargo being good in cargo that pertains specifically to cargo is that it's more of a data problem than an algorithm problem. You have to have a huge, a really insightful idea of what the data is doing. Sometimes, like so, for weed detection, it is not actually, I say, a traditional detection problem because what they're doing is they're taking smaller crops from a larger from a larger area. And if you know about detection, is that for some specific detection metrics is that they're sensitive to small labels, to small boxes. If you get them wrong, you get a huge source grease, which is fatal in cow competitions. And if you're cropping, so for weak competition, the crux is that some images are cropped and some aren't. So if you're cropping an image into four pieces, the box in the middle are gonna be cropped into different boxes. That, like, and assuming the data labeler has a consistent distribution of boxes. And if you're a mix, a crop, like a set of crop images, a set of crop images, the distribution of small boxes would be quite different. It, it's a mixture of two distributions. And that'll be fine if you're just looking for, like, the performance difference between, say, 10%. But if you're competing for 0.1%, this is a huge difference. If you're not treating those two separately and this is not something you are not you are looking for if you're not doing a data science competition this is something but like if you want to be good at Kaggle you have to be sort like you have to realize that sometimes the real problem lies in the data not in your algorithm itself you can't just like always put the best algorithms like the sota on, on Cocoa, for example just throw them into the CS and see how it works you have to do more edas for your data i, I believe I I think that's some people may disagree with me but I think that's sort of like my take on the problem.
0: Yeah, I would totally agree with that. It's the problems that you're trying to solve are fundamentally different in that Kaggle you're trying to get the absolute best metric uh performance whereas in in industry it's just okay, we set a threshold and you just have to get to the threshold and like you're done. And I yeah, I think performance is sometimes also something
1: that you should take care of, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. It, you can't, and you don't, of course, you don't have the constraint of having to run it inside of a specific environment as well.
1: Yeah, because like, I was working on something, uh, a side project where like I was trying to uh, deploy a PyTorch model into TensorRT and then you, you could only use the most basic things. You can't use fancy, fancy operations because... You know, like that runtime is a lot more restricted than the PyTorch runtime. I feel. And you do not have to take care about, about that at all when you're doing a cloud computation.
0: Well, yeah, one of the things that I had noticed on, in addition to your research, of course, uh, schoolwork, is that you do have a great interest in contributing to open source projects, uh, PyTorch Geometric as an example. What's been your experience with that?
1: I feel like it is really like fun to to be able to, to to help with like people and to see people like actually using like your support requests and your, your call in in their work. And yeah, so I, I was working on writing some C++ operators for uh, Pytorch Cluster, which is part of dependencies with Pytorch Geometric, which you will sometimes use for their research with graphing networks. And I feel like it is really, f- it, it is sort of like, fun and a challenge at the same time, because you. one of the ideas that a few people agree with me is that I, I believe coding is is, a, is more of a social construct, right? You don't write code for yourself, and you don't just write code for the compiler. You write also code for other people to understand what you're... And that's what it plays into, like, open source contribution. You can't just write, like, code with horrible format and, like, unexplainable variables, because people will review your code. And... If they can't figure out what you're doing, your pull request is not gonna get merged. So I feel like by doing that, I'm gaining access to like how to like sort of contribute to a larger project and how to understand what other people are writing and writing codes in a pattern that's like conforming to other people's thing. It's, I think it's like natural languages, right? Like you don't talk about like sentences, just you you talk sentences in in order that other people can understand you. So I think code also has something, has an uh, attribute like that.
0: Yeah, that's a really good insight, especially I know that a lot of people who don't work on their own projects and don't uh, contribute to open source like that, it's a shock when they first get into industry and they'll, or they'll PR their first code change and they'll just be met with a litany of comments because they we being too fancy here, or they didn't have a comment here, code's not clear, or it's just not the same style as the rest of the repo. So it, it's, I definitely agree, it's super valuable to have that prior experience of working with other people conforming to the code base and handling those code reviews uh, as you did. Now to start to wrap up a little bit, I have some of these rapid fire questions that I've prepared. So we'll start, right. start to get into those. Okay. First of which is, what do you do for fun outside of work?
1: Really rarely, but I enjoy film photography. I sometimes play squash when I'm in the States, but uh, I don't, there is isn't a lot of squash uh, courts here in China. And uh, I do watch anime from time to time. Yeah, I, sort of, I need some sort of like a background mm-hmm. thing going on when I'm writing code. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. What book or books do you most often recommend to other people, technical or non-technical?
1: For non-technical, I recommend Fahrenheit 451. I really like the writing style of it. And I feel like a lot of things are really relevant these days. Probably not relevant when he wrote it, but right now I think it is really shocking to see The vision has has come true. Okay, for technical one, I really recommend the book written by Professor Harper called Practical Foundations of Programming Languages. This is a dense book, but it is one of the most elegant writings I've ever seen. And I really enjoy his treatment of. And I think if you want to be a programmer, y- you want to learn a little bit about how functional programming works, or like how programming theory, uh, language theories works, not to do research in those fields. And they're really, uh, they're legit research, but like you should, like, you, 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 like the, I think my, the treatment is that you shouldn't, you don't have to read that much so that you can actually go into research, but you, you have to read some of it to understand the, what's the implication of, right? your code, both imperatively and functionally. What are trade-offs of these two? And I think that book is a really good introduction to it.
0: Yeah, totally. I definitely agree that people should be aware of the different paradigms that are out there. Next question is, is there a machine learning use case or research area that you think is underrated?
1: I think machine learning for entertainment is currently underrated in two terms so I'm actually like really interested in motion capture software because I think before machine learning was a thing you need rigs like really like complicated rigs too like actual like thing you had to wear on to be captured for it but right now we have a facial landmark although this is a really debated topic but like but you at least have like post estimation algorithms that are like shown to be very successful in academia. Like, so Carnegie Mellon has this open post project and I feel like this has a lot of like implication in entertainment field where you can, by using a webcam, you can you can translate your actions into that of a virtual character. And I think this will have profound implications in the future for virtual entertainment, where people are free to express their ideas in a virtual form. And also another way, like saying we have the, these autonomous agents for a competitive game, say like big data analytics for for like also for competitive gaming and gaming in general. I feel like these are all like underrated at this moment, but I do see the potential in you know. them.
0: Wow, yeah, that's a really unique answer, and I like it a lot. The Something else that uh, someone was talking about to me last week, I think, was the related to the NVIDIA RTX releases where they're working towards having deep learning super sampling in a lot of, built-in functionality to those video cards so you can instead of having to do the full numerical calculation of i don't know ray tracing or all the other graphic stuff you can just use deep learning to approximate that because it has run before and it's usually way faster like orders of magnitude faster but can be our human human eye especially when it's really quick in a game you can't tell it all so i definitely agree yeah
1: i really love the idea of deep learning based upsampling because there's literally no new information added, but yeah. it just looks better. I, I really love the idea. It's, just, it's a necessary fiction, I'd say.
0: Yeah, same thing with the recolorings that people are doing on old films. When you see some of those, it you can tell that it was done a long time ago just because of the style, but it looks really good. It's very interesting.
1: The mm-hmm.
0: so next one is... What have is there anything that you've recently changed your mind on?
1: Um I guess um machine <laughs> learning. I used to thought that machine learning is killed on a lot of things, but as I as I study a little bit more, I feel, I feel like there are a lot there are other things you should take care about, like when, when going to an industry. Like in the end you are there to solve problems, not to use machine learning on everything you see. Like, you need exposure to other fields and like other subfields in computer science. That's That's something I've recently changed my mind about.
0: Mm -hmm. And we went over this one uh, before, but what advice would you give to someone who is just trying to learn machine learning? Maybe they're coming into college or something like that.
1: Uh, I feel like the math is really solid because, like, Otherwise, you'll be tripped. Basically, trip when you proceed later on. This is something I think I need to work on as well. Like I do see, I do not see myself as being like prepared for the mathematical foundations of machine learning, and i definitely need to take more advanced classes in college to be pre- for, prepare for that. And also, I feel like sometimes insight is more important than just learning how algorithm works. So you, you need to develop like what types of problems are can be solved more easily with what types of machine learning algorithms and what types of problem can, can be done more easily by traditional algorithms. Like I have people come to me saying, yo, can you do machine learning with this and that? And sometimes I would just be like, there's literally like, you, you can't just throw machine learning for the sake of using machine learning. Like that, that's become more of a cliche, I believe in recent years. And I feel like having that insight that this is just a tool that like, you cannot use hammer to take the computer, basically. Like, I think that's like sort of the thing I will I'll say to some of the stars learning. It's not capable of doing everything. It's not AGI. Like, we are so far from AGI. Yeah.
0: And so to start to, to wrap this up, what is next for you? So you just have this new preprint out. You're obviously working very hard on your coursework. What's next?
1: Honestly, I have no idea because I, I guess I'm still exploring the options. So I wouldn't. I don't really necessarily have a definite answer, but I guess it's to always learning more about new stops happening in the world and to be inspired.
0: And so if listeners want to learn more about you, where should they go?
1: Um, In the sense of uh, learning about what I'm doing recently or. Uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. Like a website, etc.
1: Oh, I have a personal website called uh, com where I, update from time to time of what I'm currently doing. I do not have a Twitter, but I do have a GitHub. It's called uh, LeoPeyOne. And basically probably working on something that I recently started. Sorry for not having like a more social media platform, but you just reach. Is it okay to say like to be reached out at an email or do
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, I can be reached out at alexander underscore at com. So if you want to start chat about anything I'm more than happy to do that. Yeah.
0: Yep. And I'll put all those uh, things in the show notes below, as well as links to new paper, yeah, your GitHub, especially. This has been a really fun conversation. And I just want to thank you again for coming onto the show.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for this opportunity.
0: Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com.